Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lionel Lamb Ministries. I want to welcome you to our study of the Torah. Uh, this year, as we go through the Torah cycle, why we are emphasizing how the Torah is for all people. And in each of the portions, I'm trying to point out where the Torah is significant to you personally and that it should not be dismissed as a part of our faith in the Messiah. And with that as an introduction, I want to take you to the portion that we're at this week. We are in Exodus chapter 30, uh, beginning at verse 11. In the Hebrew, we call this portion kitese. And kitese is when it's the words in verse 12, which says, when you take a census. When you take a census, when you count, is kitese. And this is part of the instruction uh, that God gave to Moses uh, when he was on the mountain. When he got the Ten Commandments, this is part, the part of the things he was told to do. Some of it ties into the tabernacle because we're in the portion of the Exodus where we're learning about the construction of the tabernacle. And so it's going to cover a couple of things associated with it. But some other very, very important things, such as when Moses came down off the mountain and the children of Israel had misbehaved and the destruction of the first set of commandments and then how God gave a second set of tablets to Moses. It's all in this portion. So let me uh, read for you here from verse 12. When you take a census of the sons of Israel, to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no pledge among them when you number them. This is very interesting language. I'm going to give you an alternative language here to really explain. When it says they shall give a ransom for himself, it is literally they shall offer a coin of redemption. That when um, the, the, the definition of the biblical word to redeem is to purchase out of slavery. The children of Israel first received a redemption when they came out of Egypt. And in effect, uh, God brought them out and pay, you know, they forced the Egyptians to pay a very big price for them to be released. Now he's saying that any time that you, Israel, decide to number yourselves and figure out how many of you are, it has to be done in this way. Every person, rich or poor, old or young, no matter who, you must have this half shekel of silver. It's the smallest silver coin that they had. And you must turn in, in other words, you give uh, this ransom, you give this coin of redemption in, and then they count the coins of redemption to determine who the number of people are. They don't count noses. They don't count faces. They count the coins of redemption for the number of Israel. And God made this a very strenuous commandment while at Mount Sinai. Uh, let me take you into a little uh, history of Israel. David is the one, King David, when he got to the height of his kingdom, he made a huge mistake on this. And he counted all of Israel without the coin of redemption. 
And as a result, judgment came upon King David and upon all of Israel. And it led to, in fact, the, the story of how uh, David purchased the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite where the temple is at today in Jerusalem. It, it actually has sprung out of that. And this coin of redemption this, that's used for the census uh, here in recent years in the Messianic movement, there were some people that were making that coin and offering it as a, you know, a memorial of, of this commandment. Uh, and it's really fascinating that, that uh, it's almost like God said, I want you to use this coin of redemption because when you number Israel, the reason you are there to be numbered is because of the redemption of God. It's not because of you. And it's to make sure that they don't trust in their numbers, but they would trust in the redemption of God. And so he said, don't count noses, count these coins when you take up a census. Verse 13, this is what everyone who is numbered shall give, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Uh, half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered for 20 years and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay for more, the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel. And when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall make atonement money from the sons of Israel, and it shall give it to the service of the tent meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Now here's what's interesting about this coin of redemption, the silver. They gathered this up to do the count of those that were all in Israel. And when we get to the book of Numbers, it's going to deal with how many, how many sons of Israel were there. And it's deal with the number. They took these half shekels. They melted them down. And this is what they made all the sockets and attaching parts of the tabernacle that held all of the uh, pieces together uh, of the tabernacle. And so it becomes very clear there are three major items that are in the tabernacle and associated with the tabernacle that speaks to a great spiritual message for us. Here's how it goes. Gold, silver, and precious stones. If you remember last week, we talked about the breastplate of it, precious stones. The gold was the furnishings and the inside of the, the tabernacle, but the silver is the attaching parts that pulls everything together. So the gold seems to represent very clearly all of the teachings, all of the principles associated with a close, intimate relationship with God. When you walked into the Holy Holies, the only thing you saw was gold. Gold walls, gold ceiling, gold Ark of the Covenant, gold. It was only that that you saw, pure gold. But when you came to the subject of redemption, then silver was the metal of choice that was associated with it. And then when it comes to the people, it's represented by precious stones. So rather than and you've heard this lesson before, rather than pursuing uh, wood, hay, and stubble, we should be pursuing gold, silver, and precious stones. 
And for those of us who are walking the faith, you pursue the gold by pursuing your own personal relationship with God. You pursue the silver by being a part of sharing the gospel with other people and the work of redemption. And the precious stones are the disciples you make and the effort you make to improve your neighbor's life and so forth. A precious stone, if you remember, is just a piece of gravel when you first find it. It has to be polished. It has to be cleaned up. That's what makes it a precious stone. And by the way, every one of us, when we come into the faith, guess what? We're a piece of gravel. We might as well be dirt. But the Lord works with us, the Holy Spirit works with us to polish us, to take the rough edges off and bring out the beauty, the natural beauty of our living souls as a part of God's family. So as we go down through here, um, we're going to see some of these other themes that deal with very personal things uh, in us. So after the census is taken up, then we have the instruction about the labor of bronze. And that's a different metal. Let's talk about that. Verse 17, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you should put water in it, and Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. And when they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with the water that they may not die, or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up a smoke, a fire sacrifice to the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, that they may not die, and it <clears throat> shall be a perpetual statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generations. This bronze, the, it was a, a large laver, it was like a big washing bowl. They would set it up so that they could wash their hands, put their feet up there and wash uh, for it. And this was part of the requirement associated with before a priest could do any of the service in there, he had to wash his hands. Interestingly enough, uh, you know, the prevention of disease, primarily from the doctors, the medical people will tell you is constantly washing your hands. Uh, you know, cleaning yourself up by simple uh, sanitation of washing. And God made this as a requirement for the priests. When they come in to handle uh, these sacrifices, they are to have clean hands and clean feet. Think about it for a moment. They're the ones that's preparing the sacrifices, that meat. They're putting it up on the altar, but they're also pulling some of the parts and preparing it to give to the children of Israel when they would go back and have their own feast at their house based on the sacrifice. And a lot of the meat that was offered on the altar came back to the person who gave it for them to have a feast to the Lord. Well, you've got all these people handling all of this, so it's important that the priests are in there constantly washing their hands and their feet so that they can do the work of the service. So God called for a labor to be done. Now, this bronze metal is also going to be used for the altar. The altar that was in um, the tabernacle was a, this bronze structure. So whereas gold, silver, and precious stones has a particular theme, bronze has a particular theme. It has to do with how God deals with judgment. And judgment uh, that is favorable results 
in propitiation, a payment for sin, so there's a transference of the responsibility, and cleansing. And we will see uh, here at the end of this portion uh, those statements come back in a very powerful way about the attributes of God, and I'll save that until we get to that point. But be mindful of the fact that, that it's very important that cleansing and judgment are taking place at the same time, and I'll point that out to you later as we get into it. So we have the instruction of the labor. Then we have the instruction for some of the consumables that were used in the temple, namely the sweet spices that they would burn before the Lord on the golden altar and the anointing oil that was used for a whole variety of reasons for anointing purposes. Let me read to you there. Verse 23, Take also for yourself the finest of spices, of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, a fragrant cane, 250, and a cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and an olive oil of a hen of it. That's a quantity. These are all quantity. This is a recipe for the making. Uh, and then he says, verse 25, and you shall make of these holy anointing oil. The holy oil is not just olive oil. There were other things that were put to it so that when you were around the anointing oil, there was a very sweet fragrance and perfume to it. In fact, he goes on to say, you're to do the work of the perfumer in accomplishing this. And, it, and you shall anoint the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and table and all its utensils, the lampstand, its utensil, and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils, and the laver and the stand, you shall also consecrate them, that they may be the most holy. Whatever touched them shall be holy. He would take these basic objects, and once they were anointed with this special recipe of oil, that's what sanctified and made them separate from all other things. You know, if you had a hook that we used for meat, one of the utensils for the altar, by anointing it with this oil, that meant that this hook can't be used for anything else. It's only used for the altar service. So it's sanctified under that, and the sanctification process was through the anointing oil. The same thing is true, brethren, when a person comes and they are anointed, you know, for something, either for disease or ordination or whatever the case may be, that what you're doing is you're taking that person and you're sanctifying, you're separating him from other things and now designating him for these things. And uh, as you remember, the Messiah is, Messiah means the anointed one, that he's been chosen, selected, he's completely separate from all others as a king, Messiah king. He, no other king is like him, no other prophet is like him, no other holy man is like him. He's, uh, he's, and the whole picture of being anointed is um, powerfully illustrated by this anointing oil. Now, I got to share a personal story with you uh, many years ago when um, God put it on my heart um, to start uh, Lion and Lamb Ministries. And this is going way back into the 90s. Um, I stepped away from my job. I stepped away from my career. I, I, I got started, you know, and I remember the first day 
that I uh, was officially not in work and I officially was starting what we call Lion and Lamb Ministries. There was a specific date that we, we started. it, And I remember um, that day, uh, a couple of things happened. One, I sat down to have a quiet time with the Lord, pray, talk to the Lord, and there was something welled up inside of me. One of the things that welled up in me was the concern for my children. And I was talking to the Lord about it, and I said, Lord, look, not, not for me, for, for my kids. My kids deserve a dad that will get out and go work and provide for them. They deserve that. And I, I had this almost a sense by me stepping away from my career, I, w I wasn't fulfilling that. that. That was my thought. Interestingly enough, the Lord in that quiet time, I've had this experience one other time, um, the Lord got very direct with me. All I can tell you is I felt like I got slapped in the face. I was startled. And I clearly heard the Lord uh, in my spirit say, Monty, I've been taking care of your kids from before the time they were born. And it was like relief came over me. Oh, that's right, Lord. You know about my kids. You've been taking care of them. I've just been adding along with you to take care of them. I wasn't the primary person taking care of them. You are. So I know you're not giving up on this job. You know, it's just we're going to make a few adjustments here, but I don't have to worry about that anymore. That, so that was a significant milestone to me because the day I started Lion Lamb Ministries is the first day in my adult life I didn't have a paycheck and a job. First time I was that free. I've always had a job, always had a paycheck coming in. I uh, have always felt secure that I was doing what I was supposed to do. And for the first time, I have to trust completely in the Lord. And so we were coming to those terms. I went into the shower. I'm standing in the shower, showering myself, and I'm having a conversation with the Lord. And I said, okay, Lord, we're, we're starting this ministry. And uh, what is the first thing that you want me to do? That was, that was the prayer. First day of the ministry, I'm standing in the shower. And um, what is the first thing that you want me to do in this ministry? And it seemed like the Lord was just over my left shoulder. I mean, it literally had this sense of his presence was right there. And clear as a bell, just as he had said to me earlier in the morning, he said to me, I told you to make anointing oil. I had, this was the Torah portion for that week. And I went, what? You want me to make anointing oil? And the thing that struck me was these pa this passage is the one that I had taught. And the thing that struck me was, well, I taught that because that's just the subject of, of you know, the, the subject of anointing oil. But I didn't realize you wanted me to do that. Well, essentially, we were just starting Line of Land Ministries. And he's saying, no, I want you to make anointing oil so that this ministry is anointed. So... I stepped out of the shower, I read the part about, I reread the particle, and I said, I looked at the different items. There's four distinct items. And I walked into my wife, Lynn, at that time, and I said, Lynn, um, 
the Lord just told me is the first thing that we're going to do in this ministry. And she said, oh, really? What did he say? I said, make anointing oil. And Lionel Lamb Ministries, the very first product that we have here is anointing oil. You know, I have my recipe of anointing oil. So let me tell you briefly what it is. It's this recipe with one item changed. Because the instruction goes on to say that this anointing oil, this particular recipe, can only be used in the temple service. It's not to be used by other common people. So I altered one item in this recipe, and I proceeded to say, well, if I'm going to do the work of the perf perfumer, which is essential oils, I need to find essential oil for uh, this cane and this cassia and, and these other things. Well, I found out that there was frankincense, it was cinnamon, it was those kinds of things. And so I um, started doing the research, where can I get those essential oils? And I figured I'd probably have to get them on the international scale. And so I was, began searching for where I can get these essential oils. And I found this place in New York that had exactly what I was interested in. And so I was thinking to myself, well, I'll call in, I'll order some of the stuff, we'll get some of this shipped to me, and I'll be, be in to do it. When I suddenly discovered that they had another office, the other office was in Oklahoma City. And I lived in Norman. So I, that day, drove up to that office and got exactly the items that I needed and I came back and I began to work on different recipes of portions uh, following this basic example here until I made an anointing oil that I felt was the right one for me to make. And then I had to get the bottles and then I had to make a label and put it together. And when I got, when I got done making the anointing oil, well, then I said, okay, Lord, what, if you don't mind my asking, coming from my good Baptist background where we only anointed people for ordination if somebody got sick, why in the world did you have me do that? Why was that the first thing? Well, it goes back to this Torah portion. It goes back to that all of these things that were created for the tabernacle, every one of them had to be anointed. Everything had to be anointed to be set apart, to be used only for the service of God. And this oil was that for that purpose. And it shows how powerfully the Messiah is the center part of our faith, the anointed one is the center part of all of our ministry, all of our walk of faith. We need that anointed one uh, to be at the focal point. And that's what we see illustrated here in what follows. Well, now, here continuing on in the same chapter, chapter 30, is the recipe for the uh, temple incense and the spices for it uh, that have come together. Now, chapter 31, moving on quickly here, Chapter 31 introduces a certain person to, he says, verse 2, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge, and all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold, in silver, and in bronze, and in the cutting of the stones for settings, and in carving of the wood, and may work all the kinds of craftsmanship. This is the man, plus one other that will be mentioned here. They are the men who created 
all of the furnishings. They're the ones that formed the Ark of the Covenant, the table of showbread, the menorah. They're the ones that, that made all the stonework and the breastpiece for Moses and for Aaron and for their purposes. God designated this one fellow. Now, the reason why we should take note of this is that it gives us a genealogy of this guy. It says that he is the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. He wasn't a Levite. You know, you'd think a Levite would be the one that would have crafted all the stuff in the tabernacle. No. It was some from, somebody from Judah that did it. Specifically, his grandfather was a man named Hur. Now, the name Hur is very significant in Jewish history. Um, how many of you have seen uh, the movie Ben-Hur? Well, and the guy, the main character, Charlton Heston, his name is Judah Ben-Hur. Judah, son of Hur. Where did they cut up with that name to use in that movie? This verse. And the guy who wrote that story and came up with that name for his central character, he went to the Jewish community and he said, I need the name of some ancient Jew, okay, some ancient Israelite, that their name stands above other names as being an honorable name amongst all of Israel. Who, tell me who are the honorable names of just regular citizens in Israel. We're not talking about prophets. We're just talking about an Israelite, and he had a very honorable name. He was very well known. The name was Hur. And here's the why. If you go back earlier, and what you'll discover here is that Hur was a man that was a contemporary with Moses and Aaron. And in fact, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they began to battle the Amorites, if you remember, there were two men who held up uh, Moses' arms. One was Aaron on one arm. The other guy was a guy named Hur. And they were holding Moses' arms up as Joshua went out to do the battle. And so Hur was one of those fellows. Here very shortly, we're going to find out that when Moses um, uh, was up on the mountain and was up there for a number of days to get the tablets, that the Israelites became impatient with Moses, and that's when they decided to make the golden calf. And they went to Aaron, as we'll see here. And they went to Aaron and said, make us a God. And they had this festival of this is the God that brought us out of Egypt, this golden calf. You know that part of the story. Well, one of the stories that is told about that, but that's not written down, one of the traditional teachings and understanding of that event is that Aaron capitulated. Aaron gave in to the mob her did not. And her immediately stood up against the rebels that were calling for the making of the idol, and they summarily slaughtered him in front of Aaron. And part of the reason why Aaron capitulated and then agreed to do what the people wanted, because he saw his good friend slain. And you don't hear the name her any more in scripture after this. But you do see 
his children and his grandchildren go on to do some of the greatest things. And in fact, in this instance, his grandson will be the man who will fashion all of the artistic work of all the furnishings of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, all the lavers, all of the, it will all be formed by him. The, the precious stones, the names engraved in them, it'll all be under his supervision and his work. And he is recognized as the craftsman, if you will, the artist who did all of this work. It was Moses who directed it to be done. Aaron is the one who used it. But it was Bezalel, the grandson of her, who actually created these things and put them together for it. I will tell you that when we get to the kingdom, I am definitely looking forward to meeting this man. He served the Lord faithfully. He was a faithful man to his brethren. And he was the first to stand up against his own brethren who wanted to openly rebel against the Lord. Cost him his life. However, I am pretty certain that when we get to the kingdom, he has a tremendous reward that will be in the kingdom. And so his name is mentioned in the Torah here as the man responsible. It wasn't a collection of people. It was this one grandson who uh, was very important and in charge of that effort. Now, um, we're going to have um, the story that follows is obviously uh, Moses goes up on the mountain to get the tablets. So he's up there getting the tablets, and he's also getting some of the other instructions that go with him. Not just the Ten, tablet, or the Ten Commandments and the tablets, but God is giving him additional instructions that he's going to be bringing down. One of which is very powerfully is the Sabbath. So if you look in chapter 31 and verse 12, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you, therefore you shall to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, uh, or whoever does any work on that, the person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath, a complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual commandment, a covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Now, I want you to take notice of them. God had already spoken this in the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment in the tablet. And yet, he gives oral instruction to Moses on the mountain. Now, on this Sabbath commandment, I really want you to pay attention to this. So, not only did he speak it, not only did he write it in the Ten Commandments, God did. He gave specific instruction to Moses to come down and teach this. Are you looking for reasons why we should emphasize the Sabbath? Yes. And why would God put such emphasis on it? It's the key thing that holds us together. The Jews have a very interesting expression throughout the ages, throughout the years. 
especially in the years they've been scattered. It goes like this. It is not that Israel kept the Sabbath. It is that the Sabbath kept Israel. And Israel still has an identity to this day. Even after being kicked out of their land as a people scattered throughout the nations, they still have an identity as being part of Israel. Why? Because of Sabbath. Sabbath is that sign of the covenant the Creator God made with the people of Israel. It is the centerpiece of all of our big biblical festivals. All of our festivals are the keeping of special, quote, Sabbaths. And Sabbath is that focal point for fellowship, for unity, and it's what gives us our identity uh, with the Lord. It is a sign between ye and you that we have this covenant. I'm the creator God and you are my people. Um, very profound teaching. Many years ago, this is another key event in my life. Many years ago, I was asked to teach the Torah portions in a church. And I was a little bit suspicious how it was going to go, but they had me come and we did well. I went through all of Genesis. I got to this passage. I read these words that I just read to you, and that was it. That was the end of me teaching in that church anymore. They did not want, man, we got a problem. Um, and this is the, has been the commandment that um, separated me from my Baptist brethren. When I was teaching Sunday school, and they had a Sunday school lesson on the Ten Commandments. And I'm in my class. I'm the senior adult teacher at a big Baptist church. And, and I'm just teaching what the Baptist uh, teaching booklet said, the Ten Commandments. And I'm, and I'm just walking through each commandment and asking each person if they believe that's a commandment of the Lord, that we should keep it. Well, before I even got to the fourth one, Sabbath, one of the guys in the class piped up and he said, I know what you're doing. And I said, what do you mean? I said, I know what you're doing, what you're trying to do. And I said, well, I'm trying to teach the, the Sunday school lesson this morning that came from the Baptist. You know, here, I'm just trying to teach that. What, what do you think I'm trying to do? Oh, I know what you're trying to do. He said, I have, and this is exact words, I have a BS from Bible college, and I know what you're trying to do. I don't know, something overwhelmed me. It was the Spirit of the Lord, something. And I said, well, I think theology is way too important to BS about. And uh, that was the end of that. That was the end of my church attendance there. That's what finally kicked me out of the church and got me in the Messianic moment. Sabbath. <coughs> Keeping Sabbath, the commandment and teaching of Sabbath, which is highly emphasized in the Scripture and by the Lord himself. I'll let the rest of that, the Holy Spirit, speak to you personally about your own observance of the Sabbath. Let's continue on. Chapter 32, we now have um, the, the Lord is up there with Moses, but here's the story of the rebellion. And the, the, let me read for you verse 30, chapter 32, verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down to the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought up us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And by the way, there's a little bit of a reason for that. He went up on that mountain, you know, where God had spoke from, and it was on fire. 
The mountain was on fire. It was billowing smoke off of it. Moses walked into that. He'd been in there a long time. What, what happened to him? We know he's not getting any food or water. He's up there with the Lord. They figured he's dead. So they decide that that's what they're doing. And as I told you, between that verse and the next verse, the traditional story is her stood up, objected to what the people were doing. They slew him right in front of the eyes of Aaron. And at that point, Aaron then capitulates. And he says, verse 2, And Aaron said to him, Tear off the gold from your ears, your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to him. It's all, you know, that sounds vicious. That would be harmful. Tear the earring right out of your wife's ear. Well, that, was, that speaks to the fervor that was happening at that moment with how the people were motivated to build this idol. And so Aaron is getting into it, and he said, well, if you want to do it, then go get the gold that's in your wife's ear. Just tear it out of there and bring it to me. It's almost his way. Of and there were a lot of people that day wounded who, who did that. You know, why would you think that would be a pleasant, good thing to do? Obviously not. Verse 3, then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Each one was wounded. They wounded themselves. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Can you imagine how angry that must have made the Lord to hear that? After all the Lord has done, trying to make himself known to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, trying to make himself known to the children of Israel, and here they turn around, they make an idol and said, this is the God who brought us up from the land of Egypt. It's stunning, the, the, the contrast here. Verse 5, now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The, the term rose up to play shows you the level of debauchery that was involved in this so-called worship because that meant they were, everybody was out having sex, apparently openly. I mean, it, 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 disgusting. Uh, that goes along with tearing gold out of their ears. Verse 7, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sanct sanctified sacrifice to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Again, he repeats the declaration that was made by the people. He re, you know, God pays attention to what you say out of your mouth. And you should pay close attention to what anyone says out of the mouth. As the scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know what's really in the deep thinking of a person? Listen to what they say. When you go up and you meet somebody in a, in a contentious situation, and, and you want to understand where are they really at in this problem, 
Listen to the first sentence they speak. It will tell you what's in their heart. Don't listen to all the explanation. Listen to what they first say. They will tell you what is their priority and what is the emphasis of what they're doing. And God pays attention to what we say out of our mouth. And declarations, of course, are extremely important. That's how you make covenants, is through declarations. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they were an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. And of course, Moses argues against that. He reminds the Lord, he says, Lord, remember your promise you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how you would raise up their descendants, their descendants, plural, not just me. You know, please be merciful, God, for it. And the scripture has this one uh, very interesting place. Verse 14, so the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, this is a very interesting verse because we know from the character of God, and there's many other places that say this, God does not change his mind. He doesn't repent. He doesn't go do something and then say, well, I won't do that. But in this instance, we have the language trying to explain the dynamic that's going on here. God's anger was so great with regard to the setting up of the golden altar, excuse me, the golden idol, the calf, that he was ready to set aside all the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to punish them. The punishment was that severe. And simply Moses exercised and appealed to God's mercy and his mercy kicked in. And it wasn't that he changed his mind. God is the one who weighs mercy and justice, and that is his prerogative. That is his character. When he considers justice, you very much deserve it. You very much deserve it. And that's what we see in this example. But, but he balances and he brings mercy into the thing. And the mercy in this particular case is God says, I will not destroy the people. Um, we may do some other different things, but I'm not going to destroy them. Now, we have a fascinating moment here where it suddenly is going to shift. We're going to talk about the tablets. Moses is now being dispatched down from the mountain. Go down and see to the mountain quickly. And he takes the tablets down with him that he got from God. The people had heard the ten, God speak the Ten Commandments. Now we have these tablets with the Ten Commandments. And he is going to come down with them. These are the tablets he's going to break. Now I want you to listen to the description because there's something very unique here. Verse 15, And then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets which were written on both sides, that were written on one side and the other, and the tablets were God's work. The writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. Now, most people, when we think about the Ten Commandments, we see these two tablets, and for most of us, well, we, it's just on one side. We write them out. So what is, what is being said here? 
did you have the first and second commandment say on this side of the tablet, and then you flip the tablet, and then there's commands, you know, a couple of commandments over here, and then you get to the other tablet, and you write a few commandments, and then you flip to the other side, and you write. And no, that's not what it's saying. It says the writing could be seen from both sides. Now, I will just repeat to you what I have read from various rabbinical commentaries on this, and it goes something like this. When it says that God wrote these, it had to be self-evident that when you saw them, you knew they had not been done by a man, that God had written that. They were, had to be that unique. And that's really what it's trying to say, that these tablets that God made were so unique, they were, they were written in such a way that you knew God had done it. And here's essentially what had, they say had happened. God did write on one side of the tablet, but his engraving went completely through the tablet to where that when you turned, the, there was a writing on the other side, but it was the opposite, the back side of what was written on the front side. Now, I want you to think about that. He cut completely through the stone, and so literally the words were hollowed out of the stone. There wasn't a, a writing on the stone. It was, it was the absence of stone was the actual formation of the letter. I want you to think about for a moment in the Paleo-Hebrew what that it would have looked like because we think it was Paleo-Hebrew that was done. All of the pieces of the stone stayed intact. So that the effect was while he had written the tablets, it appeared the writing was on both sides. I would lo have loved to have seen what this looked like, how God, with his finger, bored right through the whole stone, and that it was open on the back side as well as on the front side. And it would become apparent that only God had done that. It would become apparent this was not done by a guy. Uh, can you imagine letters that would have had a small thing in the middle, you know, in that form? And that one piece of stone that's no longer touching the rest of the stone remains intact. That it's cut all the way out, but that little piece of stone in the middle stays there. When you see that, you go, how is that possible? Well, I'll tell you how it's possible. God engraved that. He made those tablets, you know, the way they were. Those are the tablets that Moses will come down Confront the children of Israel, and those are the ones he will shatter. The second set of tablets, Moses is going to be responsible for cutting out the tablets himself, the stone himself. And he will go up, and he's the one who's going to engrave uh, the words into the stone as God directs him. That's how the second set of tablets will be put together. The first set was written by God's hand. The second set is written by Moses' hand. The ones that come down and were in, were in the Ark of the Covenant were the ones, the second set that Moses brought down. And that's what this Torah portion goes to explain to us. I want to take you, before we completely run out of time, I want to take you to um, this passage um, in, in verse chapter 33 where... Moses, after he does come down and has this experience with God again, 
he, and God agrees not to destroy the children of Israel. And in fact, here's what happened. God then instructed Moses to pick up the tabernacle, move it out of the center of the camp, and put it outside the camp. The tabernacle was pulled up and set outside the camp. And when Moses went to talk to God, he would walk out, go to the, what's called the tent of meeting, and as soon as he entered in, the pillar by day, the cloud, would come over and block the entrance to it so nobody else could go there. And when Moses was there doing it, all of the children of Israel stayed at the entrance to their tents and did not wander about. And they would watch Moses go in, the pillar would come down, Moses before the Lord, they would wait at their tent until the pillar raised and Moses came back out again. Very interesting dynamic that was taking place. God was making them to understand, if you're not going to follow me, then I'm not going with you. To get everybody to understand the importance of having God present with them as opposed to separate from them. Now, it comes to the point where Moses says, Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to, you know, I, we don't have you in the tent, in the, in, the, in the camp anymore. I personally want to see your glory. And God says to Moses, you can't see my face. But he arranges for him to come up to bring up the second set of tablets to get them remade. And he puts Moses in this split in a rock. It's called the cleft of the rock, where it almost like blinders that shields him to be able to look around peripherally and only can see one direction. And God, in his presence, walks up, puts his hand in front of Moses' face, where he can only see his hand, and he turns and then takes his hand down, but he allows uh, Moses to see the backside of God, but not his face. And from that position, God then describes God. And of all the verses there are in the Scripture, these are the verses you should underline and mark because these are incredible words. It is from Exodus 34, beginning at verse 6, and it says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on their grandchildren of third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. If you're looking for words where God describes God, these are him. These are called the 13 attributes of God. There are 13 specific things mentioned by God here about himself. Now, the average person who goes in and tries to count them, guess what they're going to count? Ten. The average person will read this passage and say, well, I only see ten here. Where'd, where'd you get thirteen? And the answer to that is, you don't understand what the Lord, the Lord God means. The Lord, the Lord God, is three things. That's the way God presents himself. They are three distinct parts of God's mercy and His attributes. Three distinct attributes. You can see 
the, you can see, and this is repeated throughout Scripture. And by the way, Jewish rabbis say, yes, that, those words mean three things. Wow, that's fascinating. God has defined himself in three, three ways, three persons, if you will. The Lord, the Lord God, three things. Well, that's completely consistent with other places where we learn about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the Torah. This is God describing himself in this way. But there's one other thing before we leave that I want to point out to you. There is a, what we call a tittle by the scribes in this passage of Scripture. They take the letter noon and a particular word here, I'll point out to you, and they make it large, much larger than the rest of the script that you see in the Torah scroll. It is found at the word where it says, um, who forgives iniquity, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Uh, for the word forgives iniquity, that word starts with a large noon. It's made very big. The letter noon means the quickening of life, how life begins. You know, the, suddenly there's life. And it is used there to, to give the following teaching. That when God forgives you of iniquity, transgression, and sin, he doesn't just whitewash you. No, we talk about the covering of the blood. Okay, he doesn't just cover you know, so where you can't see it anymore. No, he comes in and he hits it and he cleanses it completely and removes it completely. He removes it so it's new life. So when we get forgiveness from the Lord... It's not he just covered our sins. He removed them completely. In fact, other places in the scripture says that God's in the business of removing them as far as the east is from the west. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's not a whitewash job. That is a complete cleansing and complete removal of it. And they use the letter noon there to specifically cover that for it. Now, my time has run out. There's still more I wish I could share with you in this portion. There's still great stuff in here. But we'll save some of that for our next Sabbath. So Shabbat Shalom to all of you. Thank you for joining us. This broadcast has been made possible by the Lord and by the generous donations of brethren like you. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you, and shalom.